<laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm. Uh, I, I do want to tell you this though. I'm. I'm driving the kids to school this morning, yeah. and uh, I don't know how we got on the topic of summer camps and what we're going to be doing this summer uh, as a family. And um, here are the summer camps in my family because I am extremely jealous. These are all summer camps that I want to do, and uh, I don't know how to handle this. So one of them is Lego Robotics. Oh, Have you ever yeah. heard about this? I've, I've oh my god! I've had a kid that's done it a couple times. It's brilliant. I, I'm super jealous because like adult me is like, I could do that for an hour every, every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Sign, sign me up. I could build a Lego robot. Oh, Come Max. on. Uh, my youngest one, Max is super into Lego robotics. He's done that. He's done a, he did that summer camp last year and was absolutely delighted by it. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know what OS they, that Lego uses, but uh, I'm excited to see what she's able to code up with it. It looks, uh, it looks cool. Uh, and then the other one that I was like, well, dang it, I want to do that too. It's 3D printing for kids. Ooh, no, that sounds super interesting. You know that the price of a 3D printer is dropping when they're doing it for summer camps for kids, you know? Absolutely. Well, yeah. My older son, Alex, came home. He says, uh, in high school, there's a kid that 3D printed his own action figure. With points of articulation and everything. And I'm like, oh my God. wow. Well, just by point of comparison. So what is it now? 2018. So I last worked at Mattel at, in 2007. Okay. So uh, 11 years ago, Mattel had a $100,000 3D printer that you had to enter like it was a clean room and you had to put on goggles and white whatever over Cody type things. Yeah. And and now they're at some kids' summer camps. <laughs> <laughs> so in 11 years, there's there's a serious price droppage in that 3D printer technology. You are not alone in being jealous of your uh, kids' summer camps. Last year, Max went to NASA Space Camp in Alabama for a week. And it's like, oh, my God, that looks like so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, for me, it was a little bit of good and bad because we drove him down or I drove him down. So the good part was that it was just me and my youngest son. And we we had like a 14 hour road trip with just us. And it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, just one on one father son time. I dropped him off at NASA Space Camp and then. This was in Huntsville, Alabama. My wife had found an affordable hotel that I hold up for a week and just set up a little working space and did nothing but work on comics for a week with zero distractions. I mean, it was just me in the hotel room living my hermit life ultimate fantasy. And then at the end of the week, I went and picked him up and heard all, all these wonderful stories and all these friends that he made. And he chirped all the way back for the 14 hour ride back. And it sounds like we're going to do it again this year. So if it works out the same, I'm really looking forward to it. So I have a million questions about this because I'm fascinated. <laughs> One is uh, you and I are cut from the same cloth because the idea of dropping me into a hotel room where I could work solidly for a week with no interruptions sounds like bliss. Oh. That sounds like absolute bliss to me. Like people say, "Hey, are you gonna? Why don't Dave? Why don't you take vacations?" It's because I literally go nuts after two or three days. Yeah. if I don't get to work, and so to me, I love what I do. So my vacations are like leave me alone so that I can cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a vacation to me. Like no no emails, no phone calls, no bills, no no people that need to be dropped off anywhere. Just let me cartoon tune solidly for a week. That's amazing. So A, I'm jealous of you as a friend. <laughs> B, I'm jealous of that space camp because that sounds amazing. I had a, a reader here in Los Angeles who works for SpaceX, a drive reader who works for SpaceX. Ooh. And 
I've gotten to do the SpaceX tour twice now. Really? And oh my gosh, there's no bigger nerd than me walking around a rocket. I was so excited to go through <laughs> SpaceX. It's, uh, <laughs> One of those things, though, tilted on its side, it's like it's like you're walking through a subway tunnel. They're gigantic. Oh, really? They were building the some parts of the Falcon Heavy when we were going through, and oh, Nelly, that sucker's big. I can't even imagine what that that BFR, that big rocket that they're building, is going to be. That thing's going to be gigantic. Wow. Uh, anyway, okay, so there's that. And then Alabama, I wanted to ask you, <laughs> did you go out and try that catfish fishing by hand <gasps> that they do in Alabama? No, I, I, it, it didn't even that? enter on my radar. I was looking for things to do, and I did drive around a little bit. Looking for like, like maybe like a fun restaurant to try or something like that. And no, catfishing by hand did not, did not come up. No. Well, if you, if you do yourself a favor in terms of enjoying humanity's idiocy and YouTube, YouTube catfishing by hand. And what they do is you get these guys with two teeth and they, they go into the water shirtless. Uh Uh-huh. And they, they wiggle their hand around as though it's a worm or a creature that, that a catfish would want to eat. Right. And then you, you get these 100, 150-pound catfish that chomp down on their arm. Oh. So they swallow the guy's entire arm. <laughs> and, then, and then these idiots grab it by the gizzard from the inside. <laughs> And they, these shirtless, two teeth wonders, lift the fish up out of the water and go, Paul, look what I got, 150 pound catfish. Oh, hell, we going to eat well tonight. <laughs> Them's good eating. It, it is the most Americana thing that you've ever seen. You're like, you can just hear someone in the background going, ding, 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 ding. And you're like, what is this? How, who figured this out that I'll just let a fish swallow my yeah, arm, I'll grab it by the gizzard. It is very American. It's it's like bait. I don't need no bait. As long as I got this thumb. <laughs> and if he keeps doing that, if there's snapping turtles in that water, he's not going to have that for long either. <laughs> so the, the the term for this type of fishing is noodling. Noodling. Which I think is hilarious. Oh, noodling. noodling sounds like a completely different activity. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it is Alabama, Dad. I just love the idea. Eustace, Buford, come on, we're going to go noodling. Get your shirts off. Let's get in the water and get a fish. Come on, we're going to go noodling. We're going noodling. No, Eustace, Eustace, keep your pants on. Don't use that part. Use your arm. You might need that later. There has been snapping turtles in this particular neck of the woods. <laughs> if that there's a snapping turtle on your winker there, Eustace, you don't want that. winker. <laughs> Oh boy! Oh, so they stick their hand in, and then they come out with a catfish. Yeah, and uh, honest to God, if you're near a computer when you're listening to this, just just treat yourself and hit pause on this podcast and go watch five minutes of bare-chested fat guys with no teeth noodling into river in oh, Alabama. It's amazing. God. Now I know I got to do it. If, if I end up having that week like I did the last year, I'm going to have to come back with a what I did on my summer vacation report, and you know it's going to have to include noodling. <laughs> I have a feeling, though, the wedding ring is going to come off and somehow in this process. <laughs> what are you implying I'm going to do with these catfish? 
Brad, you're going noodling. Well, enough about noodling. On to doodling. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Comic Lab, the show about making comics. And making a living from comics. I'm Dave Kellett, cartoonist of Drive and Sheldon and co-director of Strip. And I'm Brad Geiger, transition extraordinaire, editor of webcomics.com and cartoonist of Evil Inc. And this week's hour of comics advice is made possible by your support at patreon.com. Slash Comic Lab. Check out the Kickstarter for Dave's new book at newpugbook.com, which is doing really well. And also something that's doing really well. We're getting really close to Drunk Comic Lab. I am very excited about that. Brad, we are at 52 five-star reviews out of the 100 that we need for Drunk Comic Lab. And so using Brad Geiger math, we are 95% of the way towards <laughs> Comic Lab. That's right. We are this close. To drunk. And in fact, anybody listening to today's show might think that we had already gotten there. <laughs> <laughs> so for all of our noodling fans, doing the math in your head, that means 52 out of 100. We need three more people to... Uh, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. No, we're getting really... And the impressive thing, you guys, is that this started at 27 when we made the announcement. Rocketing up to 51 is huge. So it shows us we can absolutely do this. We can have Drunk Comic Lab this spring if things keep going at this pace. So if you haven't given us a five-star rating yet, jump on over to iTunes. They don't make it easy. You've got to kind of search around for it. you got to scroll all the way down if you're on your iPhone but it is possible. And give us a five-star rating. Once we get to 100, it's Drunk Comic Lab, where we sit down, uncork a couple bottles, and just start telling stories. No no information, all story. <laughs> and just, it's just, it ends up being us shit-talking the industry. Let me tell you about Rob Liefeld. Oh, I'm going I'm to tell you a story from 1999. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking about all the people that we've had run-ins with. I'll tell my Dean Yeagle story. It'll be it'll be great. I've got some Ziggy stories that'll take the hair <laughs> off your chest. Hold on, let me just take a go, go, go. let me have to tell you about Ziggy. <laughs> I love the idea that we would be talking shit about the most vanilla comic strips. Like, hold on, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Family Circus. Hold on, you're going to want to hear this story. Didn't we actually interview him or the, his son at one time? I seem to remember doing a Web Comics Weekly about him. Oh, maybe. He talked about how his dad used to sit down in restaurants with him and basically do games with him that trained him how to write Ziggy? Yeah, I feel okay, I feel like what actually happened is you talked to him and then you brought that story back to Webcomics Weekly. Oh, I think that's what happened. I don't remember talking. Somebody, somebody must have talked to him. It was actually, you walked away having like a warm feeling about a strip that you probably were lukewarm about before. So Comic Lab 52 out of 100. The, and the most painful part about this is we've seen the stats as to how many of you are listening to the show. Then it's really sad that only 52 of you have taken the time. So <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good point. There is room for growth there. I'm going to get grandmotherly on on the couple thousand of you that have not gone over and give it a five-star rating. We could literally have Drunk Comic Lab tomorrow if you just... It literally takes 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. iTunes does not make it easy, but just take a second and go do it. There, that's your grandmother talk for today. <laughs> and one thing, one thing I glossed over, but I wanted to ask before we got too far into the show, how's your Kickstarter going? Uh, it's going good. It's 81% of the way there. So using my Brad Geiger math, uh, $5 away from the... From the uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna let that dumb joke go. It's such a hack. <laughs> hey, I was I was upset because I think we had like 45 or something. And and anyhow, I came up with the correct fraction, but it was like something weird, like nine twentieths. 
And I'm like, oh, that's that, that that math actually works. And I tweeted that out to you, and I and I got nobody even realized that I had the right math. <laughs> I think they all assumed I was still wrong. We kind of approached it with the idea that even a broken clock can be right twice a day. So, <laughs> hey, look, Brad plucked the number out of his hat and it worked. Uh, so no, I applaud you for nine twentieths. That's that is a fraction you don't often see. So that's uh, that's good that you made that work. Yeah. So to answer your question though, with seriousness, and thank you for asking. The Kickstarter is at that that psychological stage in the middle, and everybody has it in their Kickstarter phase where you go, why is this taking so long? I just want to do it. I want it to be done. I've had Kickstarters that funded two, three days in. I've had them 10 days in. I've had them 20 days in. Mm-hmm. And no matter what happens in a Kickstarter campaign, there's always a lull in the middle where the where the, it's still growing, but it's growing at like a, a 1% to 10% rate rather than the, the huge emotional spurt that you get at the beginning of a, of a Kickstarter campaign yeah. and, the other, and the other one that you get at the end. So my goal for this Kickstarter is $25,000. i will probably get there within the next uh, 5 to 10 days, and then there'll be five days left. And then what will happen is there'll be a huge exponential curve back up again and it'll probably end up somewhere between 30 and 35 is what I'm guessing. Yeah. Which, which is fine for a book that basically a book that I'm producing, A, because my pug books were always my biggest sellers. And also because those things just print money at a Comic-Con. Yeah. I leave them down at the end of a booth and it's just $2,000 of no pressure sales at the end of a Comic-Con. So That's beautiful. The fact that I sold out of four runs of my first pug book and two or three runs of the second pug book, I was like, I got to do, do another one. Yeah. I got to do another. That, that money is so sweet. <laughs> I love it. Oh. You've got to be a smart business business person, when you are seeing something that's getting such a response, you got to drill down on that. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this before, about you can be the stickler artist of like, well, that's not my pride and joy. I I don't want to sell that one. I don't want to push that one. But like, why fight it? If you have something that you created that's making money, let it make money for you. That's you right. know, That's right. Don't fight yourself. There's so many other things that are fighting against you without you joining them. <laughs> Get out there and push. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, like it's, it's hard enough to to make it work. So when something is working for you, don't fight it. I mean, you don't want to be like Sir Arthur Kernan Doyle and kill off Sherlock Holmes and then go, oh, wait, 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 wait. He's back. He's back. Oh, God. Oh, God. He's back, everybody. He's Just back. Just kidding. I like uh, eating. <laughs> having having eaten the house was kind of nice. It turns out a mortgage in London is very expensive. <laughs> oh, God. He's back alive. He's back alive. All right. Uh, so Sherlock Holmes was never dead. He just fell off the cliff and he landed in the river. Okay. He's fine. He's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I got to say, uh, going back to the Kickstarter, it, it was Corey Cassoni uh, from Toon Hound Studios that, that pointed it out to me, and it's just stuck with me ever since. He says, you make most of your money on a Kickstarter on the first day and on the last day. And it might not, you know, obviously mathematically work out to exactly that, but the thought behind it is absolutely true. You can tell a lot about how the health of your Kickstarter is going to go in that first couple of days. And if you get to a decent point where you can see that the end is near by that last day, you know you're going to get a big push because everybody's going to be jumping in. A lot of people won't move without a deadline. They're going to be jumping in because this is their last chance. And by the way, when you're out there talking about your Kickstarter, it's up to you to talk about it in the right terms. You don't want to say stuff like, oh, we're almost there, but I don't know if we're going to do it. Your job is to instill incitement. Your job is to say, hey, 
This is your last chance to get on on these great rewards that I'm offering. <laughs> you got That's where the emphasis got to be. This is a this is a special thing. The clock is running out, and here's your opportunity to get this great stuff. And hopefully, it is great stuff that you're offering. It's so many times you see people to let their insecurities show through their social media. They talk about it with exactly the wrong words. Your job is to create, especially in that last couple of days. Your job is to create excitement. Look at it this way. You're a, you're a pilot and you're trying to entice people onto your onto your plane and you don't want to use language like oh boy I sure hope we land right <laughs> like that's oh my god that's a brilliant metaphor <laughs> yes hey, come on come on everybody let's let's all jump on this plane I sure hope we have enough gas oh gosh oh <laughs> And then you just, you just start sounding like Morty. Oh, oh geez. Oh, gosh. Everybody. I hope we all. Uh, so, yeah, no, you are you are basically trying to be a conductor of a crowd. And you want to let that crowd know that you're going to make it. It's going to be awesome. Everything's fine. You're in good hands. Are you going to be anxious during that process? Absolutely. Are they in good hands? They're going to be in the best hands that you can do. But you want to reassure everyone that, that you're going to be doing your best because nobody wants to come to a party where the person throwing the party is not sure if it's going to be great. Like you, the, right. you want to go to the party where everybody's confident they're going to have a fun time. You want to pitch and modify your pitch to match that tone. How many Kickstarters have you done, Dave? Five. 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 Four. How many Kickstarters? Four, uh, how many Kickstarters didn't have you worried at some point during those thirty days? Oh my! Every single one of them. And I. That's so exactly my, right. <laughs> between my five Kickstarters, I think I'm approaching. I think a half million dollars, right? Between mm. the five Kickstarters. And at every single one of those, I was biting my nails, every single one yep. and nervous and anxious. And yet, if you look at my public social media and throughout those things, it's like going great. Everything's fine. Nope. Yep. Nope. Nope. Look at that bright blue sky. And we're heading towards the, the sunny days. La, da, 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 da. The best, this is the best month out of the year, as far as you're and, concerned. And in the meantime, cut to Dave at his house, eating his feelings with a pint, <laughs> with a pint of mint cookie Ben and Jerry's. That's right. Are you are you a mint cookie guy? <laughs> I, I am right now, Brad. I'm, <laughs> I'm a lactate vanilla with a little caramel syrup guy. <laughs> lactate. Oh my God. Oh. Nothing. Nothing says boring old man like the phrase lactate. Oh and God. Lactate vanilla yet. <laughs> oh, oh Lord. Oh Ooh. man. That's like, hey, hey, Dad, you want some of my Snickers? Well, let me just have some of this Metamucil first. Hold on. <laughs> Hey, Dad. Hey, Metamucil. <laughs> hey, Pop. Hey, Pop. I'm home from school. You want to throw the the old pigskin around with me? Sure. Just let me get some of this gold bond medicated foot powder <laughs> on my feet first. <laughs> oh God, gold bond. That was a that was a great uh, uh, reference. Oh. Okay, well, listen, <laughs> listen, you. Oh, we're we're about twenty minutes in, and we got to oh, start geez. talking about something here. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna number one on my list that I'm dying to know because we purposefully haven't talked about this a whole lot in the week in between because I I I wanted it to be fresh for the show. Emerald City Comic Con. Last week, we talked a lot about should you go, should you not go, and what criteria should you use. What I want to know was, 
Was this a good show? This is a complicated answer. Uh, So here is the deal. Was it a good show emotionally? Was it a good show on paper? Yes, it was great. I I tell you what, you and I spoke about this briefly before. So I tabled with Jake Parker of MrJakeParker.com, who we have had on the show. And it was a weekend of laughing and of joking and of getting ideas for future strips by joking, as you know how that happens, yeah. and talking business and learning from one another. And so we basically had a, a master class from each other in terms of how we table at conventions because we do it totally differently and it was fun to learn from each other. So that was amazing. My, my booth partner was super fun. The show financially was a, was a solid return. I ended up netting, I think, 2000 which is fine, mm-hmm. but... here's the thing every year that I'm feeling this since this happened I think I told you three or four years ago I had two years in a row where Emerald City Comic Con was just amazing they were it it was two I think seven or eight thousand dollar years at Emerald City Comic Con and I was like oh what a great year this is all this is everything's going coming up Dave and then I have since I've since dropped down significantly on the show and so on paper it's still fine I'm still making a profit and the per diem is like all right that was worth going I guess but I'm chasing the dragon of what it once was, I guess, is another way of saying it. And I don't know what the perfect conditions were, which is maddening to me because I track things really granularly at conventions. And I... Uh, there are some things that you just can't control. Like I've had years where a reader would come up and buy five or six original arts right then. And right. that that's five or 600 bucks, bang, 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 within two seconds, right? Well, I can't control if that person doesn't come to the show next year or or doesn't, you know, isn't having as good a year financially and doesn't buy strips for me. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you the famous Frenchman story? Uh, fr- Frenchman, that sounds weird. Frenchman story that, about uh, San Diego Comic-Con from 10 years ago? I remember them being Germans, but go ahead and tell the story because I'm, I think, I think I'm remembering the story, but but I'm remembering it differently. Well, this is just in terms of how certain things you can't control about a Comic-Con. So, okay, let's make them Germans. I thought they were French, but... Uh, <laughs> Germans are funnier. I, if this is a yeah. funny story, it's going to be funnier with Germans in it. Yeah, sure. I'll make them a feet Germans too, which will be fun. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so they, they, come up, they come up to the booth and there's like five or six of them. They're like... Uh, yeah, we haven't seen your art before. What, what, <laughs> what, are you doing? what are you doing? And I said, oh, hi, I'm Dave Kellett. All my work is online. Oh, I love your line art style. It's very uh, it's very a clean line style of uh, the Clairline style in France. It's very nice. I like it. Um, can I look through your originals? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, here's a flyer if you want to, you know, that kind of, all the standard patter. And anyway, they're the group of them. They're all muttering in German. And they're all talking to each other. And I think I look over you. I'm like, well, I don't know. I shrug my shoulders. Yeah. And then they're pulling out strips. I, like I have about 50 or 60 original arts. At, I bring some of the better ones to a show. Yeah. And they're pulling, they're pulling out 10 or 15 strips. And normally, Brad, as you know well, what happens then is someone goes, okay, well, I got to be reasonable. And then they narrow it down to the one or two original arts that they want to buy. And they bring right. those forward, right? Yeah. Well, well, Hans uh, yeah. gets out his 10 to 15 original arts and then hands them all to me and goes, uh, yeah, if you'd like to ring me up. And I was like, oh, oh wait, you want to buy God. You want to buy $1,500 of original art right now? Uh, yeah, this is wonderful. I love your style. I can't believe I've never seen it before. I'd love to put this in, in, my, in my house. And it's great. I love it. Oh. And so I was like, okay, that'll be $1,500, please. And I have spent the last 15 years <laughs> waiting for those Germans to come back to my booth. <laughs> Please, Germans, come home. 
I'm I'm sorry what we did to Berlin in World War II. Please come back. No, so like it's it's been my Narnia. I'm like looking for that door to get back in. Like Aslan, please let me back in. I want yeah. that fifteen hundred dollars every year. Oh, I'm, there's a whole longer story that I think I could tell you too. That they invited me out to dinner that night. Like we're from a group of European collectors that we have dinner every San Diego Comic Con. If you'd like to come, because I told them that I collect original art, mm-hmm. and so I go to this dinner, and I'm like the only kid. I think this was ten years ago, so I was like I don't know. 31 or whatever. I guess that's not a kid, but anyway, young, these guys are all fifties and sixties yeah. and they're like, they're passing around, by the way, just passing it around this huge table of what they bought that day at Comic-Con. And there's like Kirby's and Pogo's and Arthur Adams and wow. Charles Schultz and, and, um, and the Charles you know, Schultz is huge. Yeah. And Schultz's go for regularly for 25, $30,000. <laughs> oh, God damn it. I see what you just did there. <laughs> <laughs> you were, I see you what were you did killing me. me that that floated right over the plate. <laughs> <laughs> for those for those that didn't hear it, that was a reference to one of our Patreon pro tip episodes. That uh, oh my god, if you haven't listened to it, go back to that one. Anyway, so I and I, I somehow got this door to this world of collectors, and it's it's been slammed shut, and I've never gotten back into oh Narnia. And, well, oh, yeah, and and you're always chasing that because that makes that's a huge and that's nothing but pure profit. Those th- other than shipping those to the convention. It's nothing but profit. I have a thousand pound fireproof, not safe. It's like a drawer system in my warehouse that holds 4,000 of those. And to me, they're just taking up space at this point, yeah. you know, like, so, so to turn those plastic wrapped pieces of paper into $1,500 is like, that's everything I want in life. I want nothing more than to turn all of those things into pieces of those pieces of paper into money and sell them <laughs> off. So Turn those pieces of paper into other pieces of paper and I will be very happy. That's right. And Anyway, it's a long story short about the Emerald City Comic Con. How was it? There are only two shows that I still do anymore, and that's Emerald City Comic Con and San Diego Comic Con. Mm-hmm. And I do those because San Diego Comic Con, I can make regularly six to seven times cost at that show. Yeah. And so that show is amazing. Emerald City Comic Con, I can, based on past math, I can do two to four times cost doing that show. Mm-hmm. But if I do SPX, I make one times cost, one and a half times, two times cost, not enough to make it worthwhile, you know? Right. Because then you're looking at a per diem of like $250, $300 profit. And that's that's nothing. I, I could do that at home yeah. just by doing a, an eBay. So I have to make at least... F- $1,000 in sales a day at a show to make it worthwhile. Um, and ideally, 1500 to $2,000 a day. And so the only two that can still do that is Emerald City and San Diego. But the last few years, my sales have not matched what Emerald City used to be. So I'm still making a good per diem and it's still good, but it's not... I don't know how to describe this emotional feeling. It's not what it was. Right. It's like... Like the only way I can describe it is like a relationship where like oh, some of the spark is gone, you yeah. know, like it's still it's still working, but like I'm still making a, a good net, but it's not what I want it to be. So let me ask you this compared to last year, because I'm sure you've compared the numbers. Was it higher, lower or, or about the same? Well, I was smart and my costs were lower and then I ended up uh, my gross was higher anyway. So so it was up over last year. So that's good. Okay. And that's an improvement. And the show emotionally was more fun because Jake was tabling with me. And as a result, we've made plans that he's going to uh, table. He's going to buy the table next to me for next year. So Jake, that's Jake, Jake. It's all I hear about is Jake. Are you, you going to start doing a podcast with Jake too? Jake will be wow, uh, your new, wow. new co oh Am I being replaced here by Jake? I'm, I'm Oh, wow. 
I'm starting Look to get a little man. bit uh, uh, defensive here. Look, Boopus got his feelings yeah, hurt. Yeah, I'm sorry, Boopus. Great, Jake. Does he have good teeth too? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Jake Jake holds me in a way you've never held me, bro. <laughs> Jake, Jake still tells me I'm handsome. You don't do that anymore. Jake takes me out to dinner. We went to we went to Johnny Rockets. I gotta still tell you you're handsome every damn show. All right, all right, you're handsome. Jake makes me feel special in a way you don't do anymore, Brad. But this raises a good point, and I actually want to talk about yeah. this because. I think one of the reasons why I have lasted as long doing uh, certain conventions is that, and I don't want to sound wishy-washy, but I would say this to you even off the air, and you know this, is that I genuinely loved our time conventioning together for a decade or more. And if people listen to this podcast and listen to us laugh together, this is what we do or we used to do before Brad left me for five days in a row at San Diego (laughs) Comic-Con. We would literally laugh for five days in a row. We would. And that that joy spread to sales because people would walk by and be like, what are these two guys laughing about? You get a crowd with certain jokes and uh, you get runners going and we would get so many ideas. I remember you and I would be talking and then all of a sudden you'd be like, hold on, I got to write that down. And then we'd be talking and then I would say, hold on, I got to write something down. And we would get ideas all weekend, we would go back feeling refreshed and recharged and we would make great sales. So anyway, when you stopped tabling with me because, and for all the right reasons, uh, financially and logistically, you stopped going to conventions. I will be honest as a friend that I missed that because we had a perfect energy. We, We knew how to work around each other and near each other for five days so that we didn't kill each other. And we had fun. And so Part of why Emerald City stopped being fun for me is that I wasn't tabling with anybody. I was by myself basically for four yeah. days. So there are no matter who you are, there are stretches of a Comic Con where you're looking around going, Well, don't I feel like the ugly kid that's not being asked to dance at the at the school dance? You know? <laughs> Yo, absolutely. No, and by the way, no matter who you are, I've walked by and Kirkman's sitting there going, twiddling his thumbs or or this or that. Yeah. You know, like you can be the biggest person ever and everybody has a lull from time to time. And so when you have a friend there or you're tabling with somebody or boothing with somebody, there's jokes, there's conversations, there's shop talk. And so uh, that's Jake and I had that this weekend. I probably drove him nuts, but I thought he was delightful <laughs> and we laughed. And, and talked and I learned a lot tabling from him that I actually want to share in future shows yeah. because it was great. Yeah, well, that's good. So the, the big question next year, you're leaning towards a yes. Yeah, I'm leaning towards a yes. And part of it is because Jake taught me some, and I think I taught him, some very different ways of tabling. And I want to incorporate this San Diego Comic-Con, some of the things that he taught me. And I think he is going to incorporate some of the things that I taught him, which is fun. Uh, I mean, that's what art should be. You should be paying it forward to different artists and sharing what you know. And and inevitably, something somebody will share something with you. But anyway, so Jake has a very different strategy towards commissions than I do. Mm-hmm. As you know well from tabling with me for 10 years, people would come up to me all the time and be like, hey, do you do commissions? And I say, no. Because I always thought it's not going to be a great drawing in these conditions. I'm going to be drawing it on my lap or at a a hotel room. I'm exactly the same way. And my hand is crampy because I've been signing and sketching all day. And I'm already tired. And I'm I'm, frankly, I'm grumpy about being asked to draw something. (laughs) So, so no, I'm going to pass. I'm not going to do commissions. Right. And sometimes you've seen it. Like people will come up to you and be like, here's a very large sum of money. Do you do a commission? And they're like, nah, no, thanks. But something that Jake taught me is that people get that it's not the ideal conditions to draw in, but what you do is you make them pay for the pain of having to do the commission, which was frankly something that was kind of like imposter syndrome for me. Like I was saying, oh, the commission that I would do here is not worth – 
like if, if I did a hundred dollar commission at this con, it's not worth a hundred dollar drawing I would do at home. Doesn't matter. They're asking you to do something and you're basically going to charge them for the pain and the hassle of having to do it. So you, people would walk up to Jake and be like, how much for this? And he would throw out a number that I would be like, oh, geez, Louise. And they wouldn't even blink. They'd go, okay, great. That sounds good. Here's, here's the deposit. Text me when you're ready to pick yeah. it up. And I looked at that and I said, oh, on some level, it's just the ballsiness and the confidence to go, no, this is what my time is worth in this situation. Yeah. If you're willing to pay that, then I'm willing to do it. And if not, I totally get it. But I didn't want to do a commission anyway, so no big deal. <laughs> so someone came up and asked me to do a Batman drawing. I guess there was a famous image of... Uh, it was the cover to Death in the Family, where Batman is cradling the dead Robin. Yes. And I, not being a Batman reader, was not familiar with it. And I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't really want to draw that. And they're like, well, what if it's, what if it's your Batman? pug and and uh he's cradling your cat i said okay that could be fun and so uh i i threw out a price the person was like yeah okay great and didn't blink and i was like oh oh it's that easy all right well i guess i'll draw this then (laughs) so uh and it was and it turned out to be a fun drawing and now i've learned at san diego comic-con that during those lulls because i've watched jake do it now you take the commission and then you continue to sell, but anytime there is a serious lull, and you can you know when they're happening at Comic Con because everybody's up at a panel or something, right. um, or back at your hotel room when you're when you're relaxing after dinner, you crank it out, and it can add up to an additional one to five thousand dollars at a Comic Con. So that is a great thing to do. Yeah. And and the other thing you got to keep in mind is that what they're paying for is the performative aspect of it. They're they're paying to watch you put pencil to paper. They want to see even if they don't hover over you the entire time. They want to see parts of the process. They because that's if you've ever whipped out a sketchbook in public, you know that this thing that we do to to a lot of people is very similar to magic. They they look at that and they're like I can't even understand. I can't, you know, they always say the same thing. I can't draw a straight line, blah, blah, blah. This this thing that we do is very special to people who haven't developed that skill. We're sticking our hand underwater and coming up with 150 pound catfish on our arm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> And people are going, dang, where'd you get that big fish? You must be a good noodler. <laughs> no, but you're right. And 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 in part, what they're doing is they're paying to be part of the creative process. Yes, they're like saying, I yes. want to take all your skills, your 10,000 hours, and apply it to my idea. Right. What, what would happen if I was able to draw like you? Here's what I would do. Yes, that's exactly what they're paying for. Yep. They're paying saying, I want to use your skill set, but with my idea. Right. And so once... Jake showed me that you have to pay for the pain of doing it yeah. and that they're actually excited to be part of the process and that you can do it during lulls. I was like, it literally was a light bulb that went off that said, I have left on average $2,000 on the table at every Comic-Con I've ever done because I didn't do commissions. Right. And I immediately felt a huge mortgage bill coming in the mail <laughs> towards my house. Uh, well, that's and not what only I that, but let's, let's cover this ground real quick. That I'm going to assume that did not change your longstanding tradition of doing a free sketch inside of a book. No, I, and that's something that I have to I have to keep doing a dance because this is something that you have seen works for me anyway. Yeah, is that I'm a very a very fast sketcher or in terms of at least a good enough sketch, and so everybody that buys a book for me at Comic Con gets a very quick sketch in it with thanks because for me that builds a really strong rapport. Hey, I met the artist, and look, he gave me a sketch. Oh wow, pass it around a room when you get home. That kind of thing. Exactly. So. 
Uh, it builds a friendship and a relationship for years when you do that. So I like that. But to me, my commissions now, at least as I've seen Jake do them, they're going to be more special than I would normally do. Mm-hmm. And by more special, I mean by a factor of like an hour more special. And so everyone listening can can tell the difference between a one minute sketch and a one hour planned out commission, you know, or one and a half hour planned out commission. So right. that's the basic idea. And anyway, another thing to, to just to put a cap on this, commissions also fill what are a lot of dead time at conventions. So if I'm away from my family at a hotel room after dinner, I've had some beers or whatever, and now I'm just sitting in my hotel room in my socks watching Storage Wars, that's a huge waste of time, you know, in terms of <laughs> yeah. like, I, like I'm not with my family and I'm not working. So I'm just sitting there watching Storage Wars with, with my thumb up my nose. So um, why not be making money in that dead time with commissions? And so I'm so grateful to Jake and for you, and to you and to others that have told me over the years to do commissions. So that's that. So anyway, this also prompted a conversation that Jake and I had at the end of a, at the convention, which is we were made aware of other artists that can get to fifteen, twenty five thousand dollars at the end of a comic convention. Woof. People that you, people that you and I know. Yeah. And our conversation for the last, I think it was the last dinner, was. How do we get to fifteen, and how do we get to twenty five thousand at a comics convention? What do we have to do? Yeah, and tell so me. It's it's a re- well, well, we're still talking about it. It's part of it is it's kind of that old adage of when you when you shoot for the stars, at least you hit the moon. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're planning on well, I'm going to have a three thousand dollar convention, then you're going to have a three thousand dollar convention. Right. But if you push yourself, if your if your average is three thousand, you're like, how do I get to six thousand? How do I double it? Then you'll get to forty five hundred, or you'll get to four thousand, right? Mm-hmm. And if you and if your average convention is five thousand, and you push yourself to eight or ten, you're going to grow. I guarantee it. You know, part of it is just I realized that I had reached a stasis point at my conventions where I was like, "Hey, San Diego Comic Con, I can get to ten at San Diego. Great, I'm doing great. Wow, I'm so proud of myself." When the answer should be, "How do I get to twenty five? How do I get to fifteen? Right? You should you should never accept that your current level is the most you can get to. You should constantly be trying to go higher. And so, I'm really thankful to Jake for that way of looking at it because when you work backwards, you say, "Okay." To get to 15 at a, at a comics convention, I have to sell X number of original arts. I have to sell X number of my books that cost 50. I have to sell X number of my books that cost 30. I have to sell X number of pens. And part of you see is, okay, I might have to hire booth help. I might have to have a better, bigger or better booth. And then you, you start to plan out what your costs would need to be. And you go, and then you start making realistic choices. All right, am I actually going to hire somebody? Am I actually going to get a bigger booth? Am I going to have that much new product for the show? But at least gives you the mind frame of like, how do I grow it if I want to grow it? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a good. It was a good wake up call for me because I had grown and I had kind of settled into a stasis of I can make this much money at a comic con. <laughs> you know, no, but you you do start to settle because you don't like. It's a human nature. You don't always want to be fighting uphill. You're like, look, I, I achieved this one thing. That's fine. Good enough for me. I'm going to stay here. Right. But, but the truth is, sometimes it's like a shark. Sometimes if you sit still you're actually kind of slowly dying and you don't realize it, you know? Right. So what are your plans that you're thinking about for next year in terms of applying this for yourself? Well, for San Diego Mm Comic-Con, just doing the basic math of these commissions, I know I can add over five days, two to 3,000 to my show just by doing commissions. That's a huge jump right there. Yeah, that that alone is a huge jump. And then I I realize uh, pins are an amazing moneymaker, so I'm going on, I'm going big on those. The problem with those is, the margins are amazing, but the overall number is not amazing. So part of it is you have to have 
I have to start bumping up all my books from my 15 year price point of $15. Most of my books going forward now will start at 30. Mm. And I'm going to make them I'm going to make them bigger in color and more, you know, they're commensurately going to be better books. Right. But but when you buy one at a convention, it's uh, one sale will equal two sales of my previous books. Yeah. So that's not being grabby. I just hadn't, I hadn't raised prices in 15 years on my books. And the world has moved on in terms of uh, what's an acceptable price point for a book. Well, and not only that, but costs, paper costs alone and printing costs have certainly gone up in that time. Yeah. So the good news there is that the drive books, you know, 250 pages, that's a solid book. And so a hardcover is selling at 50 and a softcover is selling at 30 at a convention. I need to sell far less of those than I used to have to sell of my Sheldon $15 books. So that's great. Anyway, so we got to do that. I have to have, I have to throw a little, I have to think about it. I have to throw a little bit more money onto the display of how I sell original art at a convention. Mm. It's got to feel more special and it's got to be very easy for someone to look through while I'm sketching. Because what invariably happens is I'll be sketching and I'll be like, hey, while I'm sketching, feel free to look through the original art. Yep. And you've seen this happen. People start flipping through and they go, oh my God, I love this one. You have this one here? Oh, wow. Oh, and there's a slightly discounted price at the show? Oh, gosh. And then you make the sale, right? So I need to have that to be an easier process. And I've I've got to think about that to get my, my convention numbers up. So now one thing I used to do, and and by the way, my original art sales were never strong. Uh, sadly, I could never make that happen. But one thing I did try was to separate them. I, I had little tabbed index type of deals and I would separate them by subject matter. So like if I had a bunch that were maybe about teachers or I had a bunch that were about this subject or that subject. And that way, if something caught their eye in that respect, now, they could flip right to where a bunch of those comics would be. Would that be something that you might try? Yes, yes, absolutely. I should get the caveat because this is something you found with Evil Link. My Drive Originals, this was back when I was doing Originals, not mm-hmm. digital. But my, my Drive Originals wouldn't sell for the most part. Yeah. But my Sheldon sell because the ones that I bring, especially they're self-contained, you know, right. you, you don't need to need, you don't need to know anything else other than what's in the comic strip for it to work. And the ones that I bring to the show, I often think, is there a personality for whom this resonates? Yes. So if I have 200 Sheldons for the past year that I could bring to the show, I bring the 100 or the 50 or 100 that say like, all right, I know dentists will like this one. I know a dog owner will like this one. I know a teacher will like this one. You know what I mean? Like I start to think like who would want to gift this to Greg or Cindy in their life? Right. Or who would want th- who would want this on their office wall? Who would want, you know, that kind of thing. And it's very easy to put yourself into a public space and go, all right, there will be someone that wants this comic. Mm-hmm. And and you, it had what the old newspaper syndicates called refrigerator appeal. Is this something that you would clip out and put on your fridge? And all of those are standalone, freestanding comics. Like The Far Side was probably the king of that. And even when I had a comic that, for example, a dentist would very much gravitate towards all the people delivering the lines were standing there in superhero capes and spandex and boots. And it, it, that eliminated the refrigerator appeal. It's like, well, why, why I'm not into supervillains. You know, I'm a dentist. So your stuff had an amazing ability to connect on that level. And to be fair, when I was doing the newspaper version of Courting Disaster, those originals sold really well. 
because they had this that standalone appeal. Yeah, and those as a as a as a frameable piece of art were very impressive too. Yeah, uh, that's another thing too. How how will it frame up? So if you've got a lot of uh, corrections on the original that you then went and, f- and fixed digitally because you knew you could do it, that's not good. You know that that's not going to be one that's going to sell when someone sees it in person. If you've got like a scratch out on a word and the words written in digital or in ink, uh, you know, an inch above the strip. Right. So you want to bring the ones that are perfect, that are self-contained, and the ones that that resonate with a with a specific personality. Here's another thing that I did that worked really well on the courting disasters is that those were all done, I think, about five by five. So I found a place that I could get pre-cut mats and I would buy a bunch of eight by 10 mats with a five by five hole in it or slightly bigger, obviously. I could slide one of those courting disaster originals into that. I also bought at the same place a bunch of just backboards at eight by 10 made a mat. I could do it on the spot with some archive, you know, non-acid tape. And I could hand them something that was eight by 10. All they had to do was go out and buy a, a standard frame for it and they'd have it up on their wall. And that step right there added very little cost on my side and converted a whole lot of sales. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's a great, that's a great idea. And then, um, that you were asking before, how am I going to up the game? And so to finish that thought, yeah, the one thing that I'm doing is now I'm back on track. It took me a couple of years after Strip got finished, but I'm now back on track to doing two books a year. And what that means is when I go to a San Diego Comic-Con, I will have two new books every year. And so for a lot of international San Diego Comic-Con visitors especially, that is a goldmine because shipping from the U.S. has gotten so damn expensive internationally. So I'll have a lot of readers from South Africa or Australia or England or Germany that are like, hey, your book is $30, but it's going to cost me 30 bucks to ship it to where I live. There's no way I'm buying that. So invariably at San Diego Comic-Con especially, not like a lot of other shows, but especially at San Diego Comic-Con, I will have 100 or 200 international people over the course of those five days come up and go, oh, this is fantastic. I'll take both of these books. This is great. This would have cost me six, you know, $40 to ship them to Germany. Yep. So I'll take I'll take two that $30 book and that $50 book. And if you have a couple hundred people doing that, you're like, Oh, that was a good show. All right. So, but they have, but you have to have new books and you have to do it at very specific shows. Like that's not going to happen at mid Ohio con, uh, 2018. You're not going right. to get, you're not going to get Germans on Australians walking up to you and going, you know, crikey, you know, that kind of stuff. So you've got to, that's, that's only at San Diego Comic-Con and only at New York Comic-Con, if we're being honest about yep. it. And maybe to, to some smaller extent at Emerald City Comic-Con, because you yep. get a lot of um, Asian visitors coming to that one. So for that specific show, the way I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna up my game for San Diego Comic-Con, and it's good to talk about, I'm going to do commissions. That adds about two to $3,000. I'm going to have the new Pug book, which, honest to God, Brad, I just put that on the table. It sells itself. I don't have to do anything. So I'm going to have the new Pug book, and it's going to be $30 versus the old $50, because it's twice the size and in color. Yeah. And that thing will sell like hotcakes without any pressure for me. And then I'm going to have the new Anatomy of Animals book and the recent Drive book and a bunch of new pins for San Diego. So I think I can, I want to check in with you after San Diego Comic-Con, but I really think that it's going to be a good year for me there. Wow. Uh, I think I think I can up my year by by 3000 bucks over last year, I hope. Knock on wood. We'll see. And, and do you continue, like I know at San Diego, you had help with you at that show. Are you going to, is that something that you're going to continue to do? I do. Well, my assistant Beth is in Los Angeles here with me. So she comes down and the, the way we did it last year was she'll work Wednesday through Friday because those she would have worked those days anyway. And then she just enjoys the show Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And I, I 
think out of the kindness of her own heart comes by and says, hey, can I get you a sandwich? That kind of thing. So, right, right. And then my dear friend, Fred, who Fred Schroeder, who I made stripped with is a delight to laugh and talk with all weekend. He hangs out in the booth with me. Um, and uh, and so then I, that fills the friendship quota that I talked about earlier, um, <laughs> which no joke. I'm not kidding. It's important. Like I have done. I was one year that I did San Diego Comic-Con all by myself. And it's boring and tiring and you, your energy level sap and you start to feel blue about yourself. But if you've got someone to laugh with, the weekend flies by. It's like, yeah. it's like a, a big sleepover, basically, you know? No, I, I totally get that. I to- well, some of, the best t- some of the best conventions were those ones that, you know, we were all hanging out. We all had fun. And to be honest with you, a lot of the shows I did in the last couple of years were shows that I did alone. <laughs> and they and and you know that and that make I'll tell you what when you're not turning a profit that makes it even more miserable to drag yourself back to that hotel room. <laughs> and, oh God! And face oh, God. another day. I like I want people to know that the, in mentioning the Emerald City and San Diego numbers, there's a reason why those are the only two I do anymore. Because if yeah. I go to SPX. If I go to SPX, like the the profit is so small, and I'm tabling by myself, and you're like, ah, oh, this is why am I here? Is the is the feeling that I get at the end of those weekends? You got to find the shows that work for you, and if you want to take my advice, find a way to make it fun during the weekend. Yeah, because talking shop and laughing with you and with Jake and with our friends Chris and Scott and others over the years, that is what made Comic Cons for me. It was it it, it became a, a, a both a professional sit in and a and a friendship visit and a sales opportunity. And when you combine all those, it's delightful. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you had a good week. So listen, we've got a couple of questions from our uh, $5 level Patreon backers, and we've got a little bit of time here at the end of the show. Would you like to tackle uh, at least one of those? Uh, not only would I like to tackle it, I would like to noodle it. I want to... <laughs> <I wanna, laughs> I want to grab it by the gizzard. <laughs> grab it by the little fish gizzard on the inside there, man. Wow, what a visual. What, can I can I ask you, what is a gizzard? Is that chickens? Chickens have a gizzard or is that lizards? Uh, I, I honestly I honestly don't know. I could I could bullshit you and, and try to come up with something, but I honestly don't know. And I don't know whether it's like just a, a like a bird uh, type organ or a poultry organ. I like I don't know whether I have a gizzard. Well, like I if I had to guess, I would think it's like a muscular, like a thick walled part of a bird's stomach for like grinding food. Typically, nah, with that like makes grit. Sense. that's what I, I think. Know, like chickens and stuff, they will swallow pebbles to help their digestion. Yeah. And so I want you to know, because you completely fell for it, I was literally just reading the description of Gizzard that I Googled while we were talking. So <laughs> I can't, I can't bird. in good, I can't, I'm dirty bird. I can't in good standing say that I knew that I had to Google it. Um, <laughs> I, by the way, I love evolution when they're like, when evolution basically goes, yeah, I couldn't figure out how to make a way to make this stomach work. Why don't you swallow a stone? That'll do it. <laughs> Yeah, why don't you swallow a bunch of stones and leave me alone? <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like is there that's that's evolution like as a as a dad with like a wife beater on smoking in his easy chair going I don't know you can figure it out I don't know how that damn toy works like that's evolution going listen chicken I did the best I could with your stomach swallow some stones I don't care you're on your own. <laughs> I've been working day in and day out for eight billion years. You can swallow Margaret- a couple stones. <laughs> Margaret, will you tell these damn kids to swallow some stones? I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> Why, when I was your age, I would swallow stones at the drop of a hat. <laughs> you kids, you want your stomach to work perfectly? <laughs> <laughs>
You can take a little acid and ingestion, swallow a stone, and enjoy your lactate. <laughs> oh, oh, we're back to Brad's gold bond medicated feet. All right. All right. So give me give me the five dollar question. Hit us. Okay. Hit me with it. Here we've got one that that that's actually very interesting. She writes, My graphic novel is based on an eighteen ninety-seven book using the original characterful old language exclusively for the text. I'm not adding or changing a single word in the story, but we'll need a glossary in my intro. Although I wondered also about using footnotes. What do you think about this approach? Uh, well, so I have a lot of thoughts about this. First of all, we should just briefly talk about the concept of public domain, right? Is yeah. Because that, that, that goes into this concept. So the, the tacit agreement about copyright is that you claim copyright on anything that you've created and you get to control it for a certain amount of time. Originally, the idea was that uh, you know after you had uh, gotten your value at it as an artist, then the public, the society to which you are living, then has the right to manipulate it, play with it, change it. And the idea there is that people can build on ideas and stand on the shoulder of giants and get even higher. So that's the basic idea of why copyrights have expiration dates. And in this case, I think it's 19... 22, 1923, something like that, art goes into the public domain right now. So anything before 1922, I'm fairly certain, I should have looked this up, is now in the public domain. And then after 1923, the laws got changed for a couple decades there. And so some are on 95-year terms, some are on uh, the life of the artist terms, plus a certain amount of time. And then you had the Sonny Bono Mickey Mouse Protection Act in uh, the 90s, and that changed it even more. Mm -hmm. So copyright has gotten more and more restrictive in terms of its expiration date. But here's the beautiful part. So this woman, Brad, what, did, what year did she say? 1897? 1897. Her book is absolutely in the public domain. That means she can manipulate that piece of work as any way she would like to incorporate bits or pieces or the whole thing and change it around. And that is what she's doing. So now that I've talked about that, Brad, what do you think about this idea? Pretty fun, right? Oh, I, I listen, I think it's great. Although I will say this, she's vacillating between glossary and footnote. I think the answer there is definitively footnote. Because here's the deal, you got to think about user experience. No one's going to sit there, read the glossary word after word, like you read your vocabulary list in the fifth grade, memorize the definitions, and then use them in reading a, a chapter that comes up, you know, maybe 12 days later, if you're, if you've got reading habits like mine, that's a user experience that nobody is going to appreciate. So your instinct to go with the footnote is absolutely right. If I can dart my eyes down to the bottom of the page to figure out what those words are, that might be out of the ordinary that I'm going to use. So glossary, no footnote. Absolutely. Yes. Idea in general, Beautiful. And and in fact, I, I think we're going to probably see a lot more of that as people get more savvy. There's a whole, you can find online a whole database of public domain characters, public domain books, source work. As a matter of fact, if, if you're one of these people that falls into, I'm a very good comics designer, but your writing isn't hitting the mark, one of the solutions for you might be to find some of this public domain stuff and either use that verbatim or use it as a jumping off point for your next project. And there's no uh, shame in that. We get into this mindset, don't we, Dave? So often that it's got to come from my mind. It's got to be completely original. It's got to be me. It's okay. In fact, there's a real value 
to doing what this particular Patreon backer is talking about doing. There, there's no, there, it is no less a creative work than anything else that's out there. Yeah, I, well, especially when it's in the public domain, we just got to clarify that. Like, don't don't steal from Disney and be like, "Hey, this is fine, right? right Everybody, right. We're, we're fine with this. I'm taking Frozen and I'm calling it Frozenet. <laughs> we're fine with that, right?" Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, no. So everybody, it's if you look at it in a certain way, it's it's in some respects kind of like how you know, Brad, you're familiar with improv comedy. It's kind of yeah. like the concept of a prompt. Like you're taking oh, yeah. this 1897 work as a prompt, and you're seeing what ideas it generates for you in contemporary time and with your contemporary opinions and moods and attitudes. And so. Uh, I've seen people do whole cloth adaptations like Evan Dom did a beautiful adaptation of Moby Dick where he basically took the original text, it's exact Moby Dick, but he illustrated it with his style. So you can do that sort of thing because that's in the public domain. Or you can take snippets of this work and use it as a prompt and go from there. But I agree with Brad before we move on that the idea that footnotes for me are much better than a glossary because I hate having to flip back. It's just it's a personal thing. Our friend David Malky has been doing Wondermark for the better part of a decade or two now. And he is using public domain works from some of the older magazines like Punch and the equivalent back then. Mm-hmm. And what I've wanted to do, and I, I've never found a way to do it, but I think it would be such fun. I would love to see somebody do it. So there are comic strips that are now in the public domain from pre-1922. And what I want to do is set up a rule system where like I have to do them in order. So like if it if if <laughs> if, if there was a February sixth Cats and Jammer kids, then I have to do that one. Then I have to do the February seventh. Then I have to do the February eighth. Yeah. Uh, and I have to check. I don't actually know if Cats and Jammer kids are in the public domain, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um so and what I would do is make up entirely new characters for them and basically just redo the voice bubbles the art all stays the same, but I'm basically forcing myself a la Ryan North with uh, Dinosaur Comics mm-hmm. to write entirely new comics using preset visuals, in this case, Cats and Jammer Kids. Like I would, the, the rule that I want to set for myself is you can't change any visuals, can't change the size of voice bubbles, but Ooh. entirely new characters and an entirely new storylines going forward. Wow. That would be fascinating. Wouldn't that be fun? Like, I, yeah. I think it would be a fun challenge. I don't know if I would fall on my face in a crash and burn situation, but I think it might be fun to try. Yeah. So I would love to see if somebody out there had, had done it or would like to try it because I think it would be a fun long form thing. You know, like if you take the Cats and Jammer kids, but you make them that they're now uh, a delightful married couple and they're living in, you know, um, Detroit and they're working on, you know, what it's like, it'd just be fun. It'd be yeah. fun to mess with it, basically. Just mess with it. I think that'd be fun. So last question. The idea of not changing a word from the 1897 English. Thumbs up or thumbs down? That's a tough call because you're going to limit your audience with 1897 language. However, you'll have an authenticity with it that people will like. Uh, For the people that do like it, they'll dive in deep, you know? Yeah. But I think you are going to limit your audience. That's my exact Um, thoughts. In fact, I would almost go so far as to encourage you to update the language because in my opinion, your first job as a cartoonist is to communicate. And if that language forms a barrier to communicate, even with the footnotes, which is going to be tiresome after three pages, let's face it, if it happens too often, I would say that if the language b- b- forms a barrier, then that's going to, that 
be a detriment to your comic. It's not going to communicate. It won't be fun is another way to say it. You know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, that's another good way to say it. And I, you know, and I, and I get what you're saying about authenticity and I totally, and, and you're, you're rolling the dice there because that's one of those things that, you know, that if it hits with that super niche market and they just glom right onto it, you could drill down marketing wise in a very narrow sense, right. but man, you're rolling the dice. Yeah, so another novel that was written in 1897 is Dracula. Ooh, what a great point. Uh, the the language there in Dracula still pretty still pretty representative of English now. However, there's a, you know a word or two where you're like, boo, I have no idea how they're using that word in 1897. I don't know what that means. So you'd have to look it up. So I, maybe the footnotes aren't as omnipresent as we think they would be. But if it's a situational thing where like Margaret was putting the coal in the hackensack and you're like, well, wait, what's a hackensack? I don't remember what that was. And how did they use coal back then? I don't know. So if you have footnotes for literally every sentence, it's going to feel like homework and that's not going to be fun. I'm going to build on what you just said, how many successful, popular, enjoyable Dracula movies and franchises have kept the original language? None oh, of them. Bradley J. Geiger with a with a winning point. The idea. Yeah. So you're saying, okay, so and this is another way to adapt is uh, this is like anyone who has basically ever adapted, you know, like the movie 10 Things I Hate About You is the taming of the shrew, 10 Things I Hate About right, You. Right, right. Right. And what they did is and what you can do in this case or with anybody that's adapting something that's in the public domain, you basically distill down to the essence. It's kind of like rebuilding a house. You bring it down to the bones and then you build it back up again. Right. And so what every Dracula version does is they drill it down to the bones. What are the central nine or ten points of the story? And then they build it back up again, sometimes contemporaneously, sometimes in a different setting, sometimes with other characters. But that's why a lot of adaptations work, because they say, listen, a lot of this fluff, this surface stuff it doesn't translate to our modern life or sensibilities, but these, yeah. these core 10 things are amazing. And so that's what I really want out of this. And so maybe take a look at this 1897 book and say like, well, do I, do I want everything or am I just really attracted to the 10 core aspects of the story? And I should drill down to that and then rebuild it with modern sensibilities. Absolutely. And if you're passionate about the language, if that language appeals to you in certain ways, you sprinkle that back in like a seasoning. For example, yes, if yes. a character, if a character yes. comes in, <laughs> If a character comes out in out of the rain and says, where can I put my bumper shoot and holds an umbrella in their hands, nobody's going to get confused. Okay, that's what they used to call umbrellas back in the Victorian, I think, times. They called it a bumper shoot. That's a way for you to seamlessly sprinkle that language back in and give it some of that authenticity and, and share some of your love of that language with your readers. Right, right. And But yeah. you're also, like like any good author, you're guiding them, you're holding their hands so that they're Absolutely. not left on their own. And that's why if you look at an academic work, filled with glossary and footnotes because they're not holding your hand. They're assuming that you're a PhD level or a master's level uh, and, you're, and you've got this. But when you're an artist, you have to assume that you're going to have an audience coming from all sorts of directions, none of whom might might match your level of familiarity with the subject matter. So if, if they don't know a bumper shoot, but you make that a critical part of the story and you didn't give them any lead in as to what it is, then you're kind of being a dick as an author, frankly, and, right. and making them do the work. So tread carefully uh, I guess is where we're ending up on footnotes and glossary things. Yeah. I, I told you, I so when I saw that question, I'm like, it sounds like a very simple question, glossary or footnote, but there's, there's a, we answered a whole bunch of questions she didn't even ask. <laughs> I, no, I, but it's a good topic is how often are we asked about 1897 adaptations? So that's fun. But I, I think uh, Brad was smarter in seeing the question behind the question, which is, I was like, yep, footnotes, that's the way to go. No one likes glossary. <laughs> 
and and Brad had the wisdom to say, well, now hold on. Do you even want any of that? And then I started yeah. thinking about it and Brad is right. Everybody, Brad is right. And that's why. <laughs> well, you know, my, my training was as a graphic designer. And, and if you've ever wa- worked with a graphic designer or, or in an office, you know, the old joke, it is how does a graphic designer change a light bulb? And the answer is, does it have to be a light bulb? (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. And I'm telling you that when I look back uh, uh, on so many things, I, I, that is absolutely true. Yeah, (laughs) that's absolutely true. So I got one more question for you, Dave, that came in from our $5 level Patreon backers uh, that I want to knock off uh, in this one, uh, because I think it's great. And uh, you'll see what I mean. Uh, what is the optimal time of day for posting on social media? In other words, what he's saying is days and times uh, post to my uh, posting to maximize visibility. And this is one of our friends. He's over in Australia, but he's talking specifically U.S. time, uh, although we're going to get into that in a minute. But what's your optimal time to post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so forth? Well, I think both Brad and I will have the same or similar answer to this. So I'm going to take a stab at it, Brad, and you can tell me where you land on this. All right. Yeah. So my, the, I have of two minds of this and they conflict with one another. On one hand, I would say, well, if it's truly good, it's going to get retreated no matter what daytime hour you put it up on, right? It's, it's going to find its way out into the world if it's truly good. That's a, that's a one mind of it, right? And then yep. the other half of my personality saying, I would be bullshitting you if I did. I had never worried about this before. <laughs> and that I actually do think that there are probably some optimal times, which I will share with you, to put some stuff up. One is yep. look at when people have free or downtime that matches West Coast, East Coast, US, and Continental Europe. That's yep, that's yep, that, yep. that's going to be my main answer to that. Um, so, and then Bradley, what is your answer to that? Uh, you're you're going right down the same pathway that I'm going to go down. In other words, I'm when I'm posting, I'm thinking, what time is it here? What time is it on the West Coast? And what time is it in London? And for me. The sweet spot that I've found every, in fact, you, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that when I post my most important posts and those are Patreon posts, wait, Hey, there's something new on Patreon for you to go look at. It's right around between 11 o'clock and noon East coast time, because I know that's right around lunchtime for East coast. It's right around breakfast for West coast. And it's right around dinner for London. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, there was a pause there because I really didn't have anything to add to that. Uh, so yeah, so and I I kick myself for that because I you know I I spend a lot of time kind of uh, in a good natured way. Of course, you have to believe that uh, when I talk about magic hashtag thinking, but that one uh, I am absolutely guilty of. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, also- that's my own magic hashtag thinking. I I always post right around eleven thirty. Uh, because I know people are taking a, a, a lunch break right around that time, uh, maybe looking at that while they're in the line at the drive-thru and, and breakfast and uh, on the other coast and dinner out in London. And I'll also, I'll try to avoid important updates or announcements on Monday and Friday. Monday, everybody's hating their life. Friday, everybody's got more important things than you to worry about. So I'll kind of guide towards Tuesday and Wednesday, maybe Thursday. And I don't know, Dave, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but the one thing I've seen that's been consistent since we started doing this back in 2000, 
the weekend is where the internet goes to die. Yes. Nothing happens yes. on the weekend. Yes. So, and then, so my, my uh, capper to that thought, Brad, because you're absolutely right. The weekend is, is the Sahara, bleh, pick a desert. Pick a desert. <laughs> I was going to go with Gobi and then I was going to go with Sahara and then I was going to go with Mojave and my mind could not decide what desert to say. And so it ended up sounding like, well, maybe, the, maybe this is something like, you know, what people who have a stutter that's better if they sing, try to say it in a German accent. <laughs> well, I do think I, I do notice that like I I was a better public speaker when I knew slightly fewer words. Does that make sense? Like my brain has sometimes oh. too many options. And so I go yes. with like, oh, do I go with Mojave Desert, Gobi Desert, Sahara Desert? Like which one do I go with? But when I was at like 13, I knew about the Mojave Desert. So I would have just said Mojave, you know, and that would have been that. So I would have been, a, Absolutely. I guess what I'm saying is I would have been a more confident speaker in eighth grade. So good job past me. Anyway, uh, so yes, no, Brad, Brad is 100% right. The internet goes to die on the weekend because everybody's spending their well-earned time with their families and friends and, and hanging out and relaxing and sleeping. So that's the worst. And then I would also say that to echo Brad's point about magic, magic hashtags, for most of your tweets and posts and social media sharings, the time is not going to be critical, but... My huge caveat is if you're going to be eBaying something or if you're going to be ending a Kickstarter, take mm. a special note about what time a Kickstarter begins and ends and what time an eBay offering ends. Because yes. those are some of the few critical times that if you're ending an eBay or a Patreon or a Kickstarter at 2 a.m. on a Sunday, you are the dumbest person alive. Like, don't, yeah. don't do that. Like, make sure you're ending. And also, Make sure that if you're posting for West Coast, East Coast, and Continental Europe, like I said, don't do it during the drive time on the East Coast that's also bedtime in Europe. That's that's not wisdom. You want to do it during when someone's bored at work. So that's around 10.30 a.m. Western time, which works out to be about 1.30 a.m. or p.m. Uh, Eastern time, which works out to be, I believe that's 8.30 p.m. Continental Europe. Um, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, but don't do it at 5.30 on New York time because then you're at 10.30 Europe. So don't end a Kickstarter when people are going to be distracted is the, is the short Yeah. So I guess we did yes, it. We did end up having great. a good answer for this person that that uh, yeah. when to post things. So that's good. You've been listening to Comic Lab, this show about making comics and making a living from comics. Your hosts have been the four-time Alabama noodling champion, Brad <laughs> the editor of webcomics.com and the cartoonist of Evil Inc. at evil-comic.com. And fresh on his tour of Germany, Dave Kellett, co-director of Stripped and cartoonist of Sheldon at sheldoncomics.com and Drive at drivecomic.com. And the Comic Lab theme song is used with permission from Andy Creighton at theworldrecord.net. Oh, you do that so well. Comic Lab is made possible by your support on patreon.com slash comic lab. So we'll go ahead and say that twice. Patreon.com slash comic lab. 